Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, your Bible app. Do you have a Bible app? And while you do that and you find Acts chapter 20, find also 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Acts chapter 20, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This morning we are continuing our study through the book of Acts, and we've kind of had, it's been like Acts Plus. It's been like an Acts Plus sort of like mini-series here. But it's been good. The plus has been good because these are things that I really feel like the Lord's wanting us to, to take to heart in this specific season of where God has us. We're moving through the book of Acts and looking at Paul's message to the Ephesian elders, which is found in Acts 20 verses 17 through 38. But part seven today, this is going to be sort of the, the final Acts plus sort of Sunday, at least here right now. Uh, we're going to start our time in Acts 20, verse 28, and then we're going to jump into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But let's start by reading Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul, again, speaking to the Ephesian elders, knowing that his life could very well be ending here shortly as he's about to make his way into Jerusalem. This is now at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. And he says this in verse 28. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. We've been parked in this verse the past few weeks. We've been seeing the implications in this verse for those called to lead Jesus' church, along with some other passages of Scripture, uh, Peter's insights in 1 Peter 5, some things that Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 3. But we've also seen the implications in this verse for Jesus' church as a whole, his flock, us. And we've seen with that, looking at what Jesus said about his church in Matthew chapters 16 and 18, and things that Paul shared in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 13, and some specific things that the Lord laid on my heart for our church from 2 Kings 19 and Psalm 92. Last week, we focused on God's desire to cause us to, to thrive spiritually, to be taking root downward and bearing fruit upward, to be those who are planted in the house of the Lord and flourishing in the courts of our God, to be those who are fresh and flourishing and and fruitful, that God's wanting to bring us into that place of thriving and to, and to keep us there, that we would be those that even in old age are bearing fruit. So we focused on that last week, God's desire to cause us to thrive both, both individually and corporately in our spiritual life, things that the Lord put on my heart for our church that I firmly believe he wants to see happen here with us. But today, before we move on into the rest of Acts chapter 20, which again we're going to do next week, I want us to consider one sort of final aspect of God's desire to cause us to thrive as a local fellowship of believers here at Calvary Chapel Walnut Creek, a thriving spiritually that he wants worked out practically in our relationships with one another as Jesus' flock, his, his 
this little portion of Jesus's church and the broader church in the world. And I want us to do that by learning from some things that Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 12 through 15. So go ahead and leave your place in Acts and turn over to 1 Thessalonians 5. Where we're picking up in this section of Paul's letter in verse 11, Paul has just finished exhorting the believers that they were to comfort and, and build each other up after a teaching that he gave them about the rapture of the church. And now he's going to exhort them, and this is an exhortation for us too as disciples of Jesus Christ still today, in the area of our relationships within the church. And these things are extremely practical. You know, sometimes when we, even last week, when we're thinking about, you know, being those that are planted in the house of the Lord and flourishing in the courts of our God, it can almost seem like, like, I don't, I don't know how to like really practically see that happen. And we, you know, we looked at how some of that happens by abiding in Jesus and and seeking to serve the Lord as we're serving from that place of intimacy that we're first worshiping Jesus and then everything should be an outflow from that. But I love some of these more practical elements. It's really helpful for us to get some, some, some real practical guidance on how that thriving might happen as we relate to one another. Because God's not just going, I just want you, just you to thrive, just for you. It's just for you. I just, it just blesses you. He's going to like, I want to do that. But then from that, I want to make you someone who actually is an instrument in my hand to help that to happen in someone else's life. And, and so we're going to see some of that this morning and what Paul writes to the church there in in Thessalonica, there in northern Greece. So we're going to pick up in verse 12. In verses 12 and 13, Paul is going, to give a, is going to give an exhortation on how to view the leaders in the church. And this isn't just so you guys go like, hey, you need to love me more. You need to respect me more. No, this is actually like, Part of how I'm going to thrive is actually how God's going to use you in my life, but there's things that we're going to draw out of here that kind of reinforce some of the other responsibilities that God's called me to as an elder here. So verses 12 and 13, Paul writes, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love, for their work's sake, he says, be at peace among yourselves. Paul begins this new sort of exhortation to the sort of the, the church life by urging those in the church to recognize, to identify or acknowledge those who have been put in leadership in the church by the Lord. And these, there are three things that Paul says to identify, to recognize about those who are in leadership. He says, number one, that they labor among the people of the church. Number two, that they are over the people in the church in the Lord. Very important 
phrase there. And number three, that they're those who admonish the church. Now, while the focus of these two verses is really more on all of you, and we're going to focus on what Paul says to those in the church about their relationship to their leaders, I want to focus on the three things Paul points out about a church leader to help bring even more clarity and give us an even better understanding about the role and responsibilities of a, of a pastor or leader in Jesus's church to, to really just sort of add to what we've learned the past few weeks. In verse 12, we see these three things that should characterize, in Paul's mind, a pastor, an elder, a leader in the church of Jesus. Verse 12, again, he says, I urge you, or we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who, again, labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So first, a, a pastor, an elder, an overseer, a leader should be actively and faithfully serving the people of the church. And we see that in the word labor. As a pastor, as a leader, God has called me, it's called the leadership of this church, to serve you guys, not to be served. I'm a firm believer in servant leadership because that's what I see modeled by Jesus. Jesus didn't delegate service to other people and then sit back and have people wait on him hand and foot. No, he was with, he was among the people and ministered selflessly and sacrificially to those who came to him. In fact, there were times, and there's a specific moment in one of the gospels where people were coming to Jesus from all over the place and the disciples actually say, Jesus, send them away. Send them away. I mean, they're tired. It's the end of the day. They've, they've just come back from sort of a, a missions trip, so to speak, that Jesus had sent them on. Jesus had just found out that his relative John had been beheaded. He's serving, serving, serving. Send them away. And he goes, no, I want you to minister. I want you to feed them. And Jesus gives them, you know, he's, he breaks the little that they have, the loaves and the fish. He multiplies it, gives it out. And at the end of all of that, you know what Jesus does? He goes and takes a rest and he goes, you guys take over. No, he doesn't do that. Jesus goes, you guys go. He sends them off into a, a boat. And Jesus keeps ministering to the people. Jesus modeled what it was to be a servant, to lead through service, to lead through humility, to labor for the sake of the kingdom. There is a physical aspect to that later labor, but more so there's a spiritual aspect to it. It's all the things that you guys don't necessarily see a pastor or leader do. Like time spent laboring in prayer for the people of the church. Time spent laboring in the word in order to be able to have something to minister to the church from the word of God. A, a leader in Jesus' church is to labor among the flock, not to be separate from or, or se segregated from the flock. But second, they're to be 
over the church in the Lord. And this word over doesn't mean like hovering over, lording over. This word over actually kind of speaks of a a covering. The leaders in the church are providing a spiritual covering for the people of God. There's sort of a protective emphasis here, a watchful, caring sort of emphasis to this idea of them or, or me or leaders in the church being over the people in the Lord. This over in the Lord speaks of needing to lead, of, of needing to be a faithful steward who manages God's people, God's house well, but the important part is that it's in the Lord. These things are done in the name of the Lord. They're done for the Lord. Pastors or leaders are not to be dictators or tyrants. They're not to be controlling or domineering. They're not to be manipulative or abusive. I'm called to see over as an overseer of Christ's church to help provide some covering to watch over and protect and lead and minister to and and nurture and feed and love and encourage and build up and protect you all. You know, a, a great mistake has been made in many churches in our day where men have been appointed to the role of pastor because of Things that God really hasn't prioritized, like personality and charisma. Having education and degrees, and not that those things are bad. But these are sort of the things that have been looked for. Being a great speaker. Being great at running a business. Being highly motivated. These are all outward sorts of traits. When but God's concerned with the inner life, the character of the man, and the, and the calling that God has placed upon a man's life to even be in the role of a pastor or elder in the first place. Check out the qualifications that Paul lists for a, a pastor, elder, overseer. And when, I, when I'm going to read this, this word bishop that Paul uses is actually where we get the word overseer and we already know because of what we've seen P, uh, Paul write about in Acts twenty twenty eight, and what Paul or Peter wrote about in First Peter five. These titles are interchangeable for the same person within the body of Christ. Paul writes this to Timothy in First Timothy three verses one through seven. He says, "This is a faithful saying: If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work." So it's, it's not wrong to desire to be in that role. That's a good thing to want to be a part of. But then he provides some clarity. He says a bishop then, notice, must, must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. And even say, really good at teaching. Just able Can you talk? Can you open your mouth? Can you read passages from the Bible? I think that's enough, maybe. Able to teach. 
not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. You know, these things are also preventative. They're prescriptive. This, these things must be present. This is not a list of suggestions. It's a list of qualifications. It's prescriptive, but it's also preventative. Why? Because if these things are present in the life of a pastor, elder, overseer, guys, how many less problems would we see How much more care would be happening as people shepherd the flock of God? Oftentimes, the the problems that we've seen throughout church history that have come up because of people that are in leadership in the church, it's because oftentimes that there's some of these things that are missing. and, And people become damaged because of it. There's... When gentleness is not held up as a qualification, guess what? The pastor can be ruthless. He can be harsh and cruel with the people of God. When a pastor is quarrelsome, gosh, there's just, it, it causes strife within the body, looking for issues, wanting to be uh, someone who just causes debates and, and looking for something to find fault with. Someone doesn't rule his own house. Well, when someone doesn't have a good testimony with those who are outside, guess what happens? Those who are outside go, why would I want this Jesus that this person is preaching? His life's a mess. His marriage is in shambles. His kids hate him. When these things are held up, there's a preventative sort of aspect to why God is Put this in his word. Why this is supposed to be something that's prioritized when it comes to the people that are being called, the men that are being called into this role within Jesus' church. This is a list of qualifications that have to do with the character and quality and conduct of the man who God has called to be a bishop, an overseer. And as I read that, it's very sobering. These are not things that I take lightly. But I'm reminded as I consider all that we've been studying even the last few weeks, man, like on one hand, there's this real sobering, it can almost feel heavy at times of how important the church is to the Lord. But at the same time, there's, there's sort of a, there's a releasing of the burden when I remember that, you know what? The church is Jesus's. It belongs to him. The burden of responsibility, yep, yep, I've, I have a responsibility. I've been called to a very specific role. 
but the burden of the responsibility actually falls onto the shoulders of Jesus. And you know what? It makes my relate, relating even within the body and even when there are issues a little bit easier if I can remember if these are Jesus's people, then you're also Jesus's problem at times. <laughs> right? Your problem, Jesus. Like, Not that I, I don't say that to Jesus, but like, Lord, they're your, you know, when we look and we've been reading in our passages of Exodus and we see the interaction between God and Moses when the people are complaining. And there's moments where God's like, these are your people, Moses. You brought them out. And God's like, Lord, no, it's your people. You brought them out, right? And there's this sort of this back and forth sort of thing. But wow, to know that Jesus has a plan for us, that he loves us, that he's purchased us with his own blood, that he's attributed such value to us as his church. These things are things that I and any leader in Jesus' church have to keep in mind as we seek to lead well because great value requires great care that's why peter when he's speaking to husbands loving their wives in first peter he says give honor to her as to a weaker vessel not saying man your wife's so weak she's so weak it's like honor her like you would this priceless vessel that can be broken by you if you're not handling her with care such great value means that there needs to be such great care i see that here even in what paul is talking about in writing to the thessalonian believers guys each of you are loved and valued by jesus and he has you here in this church for a reason i'm called to be over you in the lord to watch over to lead in a way that honors and pleases the lord and and is in line with what his word says i don't get to just make up whatever thing i want and i'm committed by the grace of god and the power of his spirit to be faithful to what he's called me to do a pastor is to labor among the people to be over in the lord but there's a third thing here in verse 12 and that's that the elder the overseer is to admonish the church and to admonish means to teach or warn or counsel this is actually a big part of what god's called me to do as a pastor teacher is to is to teach is to warn at times is to encourage is to build up and comfort and and counsel through the word of God. Shepherds or pastors are to feed God's sheep, and this is a big part of why we give so much prominence to the word of God in our Sunday worship services. Guys, growth, washing, inwardly that sort of renewing sort of work that the lord's wanting to do that equipping that god's want to do that work of revival that work, work of strengthening that work of comforting of, of providing wisdom and direction these are all things that come as the word of god is held forth 
We need God's word to be people of the word. This is what God's called me and any other man who the Lord calls to lead alongside of me in the future. And I pray that he does. This is what we're called to do. Paul's exhortation to all of you is to recognize those characteristics. But look at the rest of his exhortation there to the, to the greater body in verse 13. He says, And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. So not only is there a need to recognize or acknowledge or identify those leaders who are leading well, there's also a need to esteem or respect them very highly in love for their work's sake. But I want us to understand that there is a difference between esteeming a pastor or leader very highly in love for their work's sake and putting a pastor or leader on a pedestal and idolizing that person. One is healthy and biblical. The other is completely unhealthy and unbiblical and will end in disappointment and frustration at the very least and disaster and ruin at the worst. I want to show you a couple of passages on how to view church leaders from the book of Hebrews. First, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, the author says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And then in verse 17 of that same chapter, he goes on to say, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Look, I'm, I'm not better or more important than any of you. The, the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. But Paul is giving an exhortation for the benefit and health of the church that leaders need to be esteemed very highly in love because really their lives are devoted to ministering to Jesus's flock. But he follows that up in verse 13 by saying, be at peace among yourselves. See, when those in the church are at peace with each other, it sure does make for an enjoyable place for the leaders to serve. When there's strife and weirdness, it, it, it can be hard to lead. But when the people of God are at peace among themselves, man, it allows the, the leaders to flourish in their roles as well. They're not weighed down with the heaviness of wondering why people can't get along and why this issue hasn't been resolved and why this person is, is going about things the way that they are. I want to exhort you all to be at peace with each other. It's a needed exhortation because, you know what? Satan would love to cause strife and bring division and seek to destroy this church and have it be just another statistic of failure and, a, and really a, a bad witness to the lost world around us who we're supposed to be reaching. And with that, just on a 
practical and applicational sort of way. If, if anyone here has beef with someone else, if there's bitterness or jealousy or envy towards another person, let me exhort you today that it needs to be dealt with. I don't mean, you know, this knockdown, drag out confrontation like hair pulling and blood and guts everywhere. Like I'm not, I know I'm being extreme. That's on purpose. I mean, humility, repentance, asking for forgiveness when you've wronged someone, a willingness to forgive someone else, if, even if you don't think that they deserve it. As children of God, we are to be peacemakers, not grudge holders or bitterness harborers. Check out what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He said, if it is possible. So even in Paul writing that, that means that sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not possible. If it is possible, notice what he says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So number one, it's not always possible. But number two, the responsibility to be at peace actually falls on you. It doesn't fall on someone else to make peace with you. It actually falls on you personally to be the one who's seeking to live peaceably with all men, all people. You know, Sometimes when we feel like we've been wronged, we're like, I'll be, I'll, I'll have peace with people when they make peace with me. When they come and not just say sorry, but like, I can really tell that they're sorry. You ever someone apologize to you and you're kind of like, didn't really sound, didn't really sound very sorry. I don't know, like, I got to give it some time. See if you're really showing that you're sorry. Let's see how this works out in a few years. <laughs> no, as much as it's, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, on the things that God's presented to you to be actively a part of that peacemaking process, you live peaceably with all people. But then in chapter 14 of Romans, in verse 19, Paul says, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify, build up another. Pursue the things that will make for peace. Guys, you know there's a reason why God in his word calls bitterness a root? Because bitterness that's not dealt with will grow down deep and spread out its roots and get anchored in place in the soil of our hearts and will cause any fruit that's produced from our lives to be bitter. You ever notice that bitter people produce bitter 
fruit. That bitterness sort of just taints everything that that person does. Every relationship that they have, the interactions, the way that they respond to things, the way that they perceive things in their mind. Bitterness taints every bit of it. It's like that plant that just gets down and it's like in everywhere. Down into the soil. This isn't the same thing, but I've got this like, it looks like I have grass in my backyard. But really what it is, is these weird weeds that look like grass that grow almost like a rope, like, a te- like this tendril thing across my yard. So it's, you know, spanning some, some space. And I've, at times I've, in the past, I don't really do it anymore because I'm like, if I start p- pulling it up, that my, what appears to be grass is just going to for sure be dirt. And I've started trying to pull up some of those weeds. And as I'm doing it, I'm like, it's like pulling up like a tripwire that was hidden in the dirt that you didn't see before. And you pull it up, and it's like, oh gosh, it's like, like <laughs> this thing is like feet long. Okay, I'll put it back down. Like, forget it. Forget, forget I even tried. But bitterness will do that in our lives. It starts to span and work its way into all these different things. And maybe everything sort of can appear even at times on the surface to be okay. The bitterness is not really that deeply rooted. But if we're honest before the Lord, it's never on the surface. Bitterness never stays on the surface. It always works its way downward and outward. Listen, bitterness doesn't just affect the person who's bitter. It affects everyone around that person. It'll cause damage in the relation to a church context. It will damage the church as a whole where bitterness should have no place at all. And I'm not saying that dealing with bitterness or unforgiveness or hurts that are caused by others is an easy thing. It's a light thing. But it has to be done. My encouragement to you, if you find yourself in that place even this morning, is to bring those things to Jesus, to bring those things into the light. So that he could put his finger on them. When you hold it close to yourself and you just let it stay down deep, it'll just keep corrupting you from the inside. You've heard that saying, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping someone else dies. Nope, it's only hurting you. Not really, bitterness does hurt other people too, but bring those things to Jesus. Let him touch those things. Let him bring healing to your heart. Let him bring healing to those damaged relationships with others so that restoration and reconciliation can take place. But moving on into verses 14 and 15, Paul kind of switches gears from addressing the church and their view of the leaders to now just addressing the church on how to view one another in the church. Verse 14 and 15, Paul writes, Now we exhort you, brethren, 
warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. You know what I see as I read these verses? That the work of ministering to people isn't reserved solely for the pastor or leader in the church. That it's to be done by all of those in the church. You guys right now and every week, you're being equipped through the teaching of the word of God for the work of ministry, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. So that the body of Christ is built up. You're being equipped to be able to fulfill these exhortations so that you can serve others. Verse 14, Paul exhorts all believers to do four things in relationship to other believers in the church. Number one, that they're to warn those who are unruly. Number two, that they're to comfort the faint-hearted. Number three, to uphold the weak. And then fourthly, to be patient with all. So, as we kind of look at these each, who are the unruly believers and what does Paul mean by unruly? Well, according to Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe, this word unruly means careless or out of line. It was applied to a soldier who would not keep rank, but insisted on marching his own way. In context, based on what Paul tells this church in his second letter to them, most likely he's speaking to those believers who were idle, who wouldn't work, who were mooching off of others and who were generally just busybodies meddling in other people's business. But there's some broader application for us here too. If there's a brother or sister in Christ whose life is not in line with the word of God, they're living their own way. It's not that Paul's saying, you know, go be the sin police, go start passing sort of a condemning judgment on these people, but we are called to warn those whose lives are out of line and out of the will of God. But understand that this has to be done prayerfully and with wisdom in God's timing and in love. The second part of that exhortation in verse 14 is to comfort the faint-hearted. This is speaking of those who maybe are prone to or who are just plain struggling with discouragement. Those who might be feeling overwhelmed, burdened, those who may be on the verge of giving up and throwing in the towel because of the circumstances of life. You know, it's amazing how far and how great of an impact an encouraging word or a listening ear or a a hug or a a cry sesh with someone or just walking alongside someone as they go through a trial or temptation or or a, a hurt or some, some sort of illness, how, how far and how great of an impact these sorts of things can have in someone else's life. 
The third part of that exhortation in verse 14 is to uphold the weak. This word uphold in the Greek means to help or be devoted to. We are to help and be devoted to those who are weak, those who are without strength. And this is speaking physically, spiritually, and morally. If someone is dealing with weakness in an area of their life, we don't cast them to the side. We don't look down on them or tell them to get over it. No, if someone is dealing with weakness, we're to help and be devoted to see them strengthened in whatever area it is that they're weak in. Guys, God wants to help or God wants to use us to help fortify and build up those areas where someone else is experiencing weakness. You know, it's such a weird thing when people despise someone else for weakness. It's kind of like move on, like, ah, I can't handle you. You're, so, you're weak. Like, I want to surround myself with strong people. I like to be around strong people, not weak people. But we forget that like all of us have areas of weakness where God wants to fortify us. And man, how tragic would it be if people treated us the way that maybe we've viewed somebody else (laughs) when it comes to approaching weakness in someone's life. But the fourth part of that exhortation in verse 14, Paul says is to be patient with all. When I think about that, there's definitely this, there's a, there's a huge aspect of being gracious and merciful associated with being patient with all. You know, each one of us have been saved by the blood of Christ, and all of us who have been saved by the blood of Christ are being sanctified. And grace and mercy needs to be extended to one another no matter where we're at in that process of sanctification that the Lord is working out in each of our lives. We need to be patient with all. Be patient. Patience is needed in the body of Christ as we interact with each other and seek to minister to one another. Check out what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. He said, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. How might God cause us to thrive as his 
flock in relationship to one another if we applied these things practically by the power of the Holy Spirit and we sought to warn the unruly, we sought to comfort the faint-hearted, we sought to uphold the weak, and we sought to be patient with all. I think, I think we'd be a church that other people would be flocking to with like extreme haste. Like, man, I just want to be there. You mean you guys, if you see there's something out of line, you'll, do, you'll, you'll come alongside and you'll, you'll, you'll warn the unruly so that, so that change can happen. You mean you guys are those who, who love to comfort the faint-hearted? I don't know about you, but when I look around the world, there's lots of faint-hearted people. They're just barely hanging on. They're in need of hope, and they don't know where to find it, and that's us. We have that hope. We have Jesus. We should be, of anyone, those who are comforting the faint-hearted. Those who are upholding the weak. Again, we're all, we all have areas of weakness in our lives that need to be shored up. And yes, God is the one who ultimately will do that work, but you know his method here, what Paul's saying? He wants us to be the people that help make that happen. To be devoted. I think of that word devoted, man, that's, that means that there's commitment required. That you and I would be devoted to those who are without strength. And that we would be patient with all. And man, that's, that's a dynamic church right there. <laughs> that's a powerful witness right there. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of passages that we could pull into a study like this to go, this is how God wants us to thrive. This is how God's church should look. This is how we're to operate within the body of Christ. And sometimes when we think of that as a whole, we go like, well, I don't even know where to start. What if we just took this this morning and we prioritized these things in the days and weeks to come? Paul finishes up his exhortation, though, in verse 15 on how to view one another. He says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. We aren't to render evil for evil to anyone, which really means what? I mean, when we think about it, it means that people are going to wrong us. They're going to sin against us. We're going to sin against them. But we aren't to repay others in like manner. We're not to respond or react in the same way as maybe they have to us. But instead, we're to always pursue. Always pursue what is good, both for ourselves and for all. I don't know about you, but it's easy to pursue what's good for me. That's sort of a, a selfish default built into us. 
do me. I do me all the time. The hard part is not doing me. The hard part is not just pursuing what's good for me, but actually considering those around me, those in the body of Christ, and wanting to actually pursue all the time what's good for someone else. This means we have to give real effort to actively look out for the good of others, even if we've been wronged by somebody else. And do what's good for them, to do good to them. I don't know about you, when I consider that, I see how much I need God's help. I see how much I need God's grace. I need God's love for somebody else. I need God's perspective to be able to look at them maybe differently than I have before. But these things that he speaks to us in his word, the things that he's calling us to, they're not unattainable. The reason he exhorts us is because he wants to empower us to do it. How we view one another and interact with one another in Jesus' church is super important to the Lord. He wants our church corporately and each of us individually to thrive spiritually, but he's given us each a responsibility, a role to fulfill in being a part of seeing that thriving work take place. Me to you all, you all to me, and all of us to one another as we pray through and seek to apply these exhortations in our own lives and in our relationships with others here in the body of Christ. Be encouraged today, guys. The Lord is desiring to use every single one of us. Each of us has a purpose and place within Jesus' flock here. He's preparing He's equipping us to minister to those he's going to bring here in the future. And he's also preparing and equipping us to go out and minister to the lost. And he wants to empower us by his spirit to be able to accomplish all of these things. I'm going to have the worship team come back up in closing. Whether you're walking strong with Jesus and everything seems to be growing great or whether you're struggling in your relationship with Jesus and everything just seems like a mess, there's, there's something here for every single one of us. Let me ask this morning, are you not at peace with others? Have you not been pursuing what's good for others? that's you, be a peacemaker. Gain God's perspective for others. If there's bitterness, confess those things to the Lord and let him uproot the root that's been allowed to permeate your heart and your relationships. Are you this morning the unruly one You're walking according to your own plan and ways. You're doing life how you want to do it, not in God's plan or will for your life. My encouragement to you today is to repent. 
Turn away from those things and turn back to the Lord. Are you this morning faint-hearted? Know this morning that God wants to comfort you. Are you weak or without strength? Know this morning that God wants to uphold you. He is devoted to your strengthening, my strengthening. Are you lacking patience? He wants to help you. Now, oftentimes when we ask for patience, what does God do? He gives opportunities for that patience to be put into action, right? Lord, give me patience today. And then like literally every person as you're driving is driving like a crazy person. You ask for patience, your kids are crazy. You ask for patience and whatever. Know that God wants to help us. Are you not thriving today in the Lord? Know this morning he wants to do a fresh work in you. In all of these places we might find ourselves today, I exhort you in the Lord, come to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Draw near to Jesus. He is the one who can meet you in all of these places, in all of these ways. Yes, he wants to use us as the body of Christ, but ultimately he's the source of all of these things for us. And this morning would we be those who are just so blown away by how amazing Jesus is. Now look, if you're here this morning and maybe you don't just first have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, maybe you've never had your sins forgiven, you've never considered, or maybe you've, you've not given enough thought to the fact that Jesus, God in human flesh, came here and walked among us, that he died a substitutionary death on a Roman cross, that he paid the penalty for your and my sin so that we could be saved eternally. Know him personally. If that's you this morning, I'd love to give you an opportunity to make the greatest decision you could ever make for your life. To put your faith in Jesus Christ, to repent, to turn away from your sin because your sin is separating you from God and will separate you from all eternity, but that's not his desire for you. If that's anybody this morning and you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ, would you stand where you're at? We'd love to pray for you. I know it's a bold move as everybody's looking around and to think that I might need to stand to make sort of some sort of decision. But Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father and all of the holy angels. Anybody this morning, you need to make that decision for Jesus Christ and surrender your life to him. Maybe this morning you fall into one of those places that we've talked about. Unruly, faint-hearted, without strength, lacking in patience. That's you this morning and you want the Lord to meet you in your circumstances. Would you stand? I'd love to pray for you if that's anybody this morning. You're just wanting to see the Lord do something in one of those sort of four areas there. Awesome. Anybody else this morning? Great. 
Lord, I pray for these this morning. Lord, we pray together as a family for them. Lord, you know what they're dealing with, God. Lord, we pray that you would, for those who are dealing with some unruliness, Lord, would you bring correction and conviction, Lord, and change and transformation in their life. Lord, letting them know how much you love them and God, how you want to do a, a fresh work in them. God, to bring them into the center of your will, Lord, into a life that is pleasing to you. Lord, for those that are faint-hearted this morning, God, would you bring comfort? God, would you surround them, Lord, with your presence? And God, would you, Lord, minister to those places even of brokenness that exist? God, for those who are dealing with weakness, with being without strength, Lord, whether that's physical or spiritual or, or moral, maybe emotional, God, would you strengthen? God, would you fortify, Lord? Would you shore up those areas that are broken down? God, instead of weakness, Lord, there would be strength, a work of strengthening, Lord, that you would do. And God, for those who are struggling with this idea of patience, Lord, would you give just an overwhelming amount of your grace and your mercy, Lord, would you pour in, Lord, that that patience would be able to happen, Lord, that your people would be at peace, they'd be at peace among themselves. God, if there's any bitterness that needs to be dealt with, Lord, if there's any relational brokenness or strain, Lord, that you would bring healing and restoration and reconciliation, God, that there'd be humility and forgiveness. Lord, would you do those things this morning? God, make us this kind of church. Lord, that we would thrive in the practical things. Lord, of being family together, of, of interacting with one another. And Lord, would it be something that would be attractive, Lord, to those outside of the body of Christ? Lord, that they'd see your power at work in us and desire you. Lord, they'd see your love within us and know that we're your disciples. Lord, that they would see us, Lord, upholding truth and hope and grace and want what Jesus, only you supply. And so, God, would you do that work in us and through us, Lord? Make us servants, Lord who serve you and serve one another well. And Lord, we do need your help, God. We know that we don't have it within ourselves. God, our default is to, do, is to pursue what's good for, for me, for us. Lord, would we pursue what's good for others, blessing one another, building up one another, Lord, ministering to one another with the power that you supply. And we thank you, Father. Lord, we sing these songs of praise to you now. Lord, be enthroned in our praises. Lord, as we take of the communion elements, God, would we remember, Lord, your body that was broken, Lord, your blood that was shed for us. And Lord, we, we thank you. We love you. Bless the rest of our morning here, Lord God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.